God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from City Light Church in Omaha. Here's Pastor Gavin Johnson. At this point, as we've been tracking with Jesus' life and ministry, He's nearing the end. He is about one week out from His crucifixion right now. Uh, and he knows that the end is looming. And so I don't know if you've noticed, but the topics of Jesus's uh, ministry have intensified over the past several weeks in the last couple chapters. Themes of heaven and hell, themes of urgency to get into the kingdom of God, themes about Jesus's second return and, and uh, what we can look forward to in the days to come. And uh, this morning's is no exception. This morning's passage is a parable that Jesus tells in the topic that it surfaces is that of investing specifically investing our lives. Now, it's really fun for me to be a dad. It's one of my greatest joys in this life, and I love to teach my kids. Uh, it's just fun. They're born, they don't know anything, and they are entrusted to parents to teach them everything. And so it's just fun to teach uh, our children how to engage in the world, how to know and walk with God, how to interact with people, uh, how to navigate difficult situations. One thing I particularly enjoy teaching them is about finances and about investing. Um, I've seen several memes on the social medias lately and uh, funny comments about how, you know, I've gone through an entire education system and I came out of school knowing how to find the area of a circle, but no idea how to do personal taxes. And uh, I I can relate to that sentiment. I grew up and did real well in school. I got an accounting degree in college and I've learned more about personal finance through trial and error in YouTube than I ever did in the class and the education system. So For that reason, as a dad, I take a lot of joy. I love studying personal finance and exploring, and then I love then uh, teaching my children uh, things like uh, the power of compound interest and passive income and active income and how real estate works and building equity and and leveraging and taking risk. And and it's fun to teach them at a younger age so they've got a better handle on these things ahead of times, and I'm hoping that will serve them well over the long haul. But where I start with all of my kids and like basic discipleship finance 101 in the Johnson household is that it starts with hard work. We work hard for money. We work and we earn a paycheck. That's where it all begins. Then we take our paycheck. First 10% goes to the Lord. Second 10%, we invest and or save. The remaining 80%, we steward for the glory of God and whatever he puts in front of us. And so I tell them, and I would tell you, if you start there and do that your whole life, you're going to be just fine. And so my son, uh, he, uh, my oldest son, Grady, is a number of years back, I think 2019-ish, he had amassed about $500 over some time. He, snubble, uh, he shoveled snow, saved up some birthday money, some Christmas money. Okay, so now he's got $500, needs to figure out what to do with it. So 10% goes to his local church, 10% he wants to invest. He says he wants to invest in the stock market. So he's got $50 and he wants to buy stock. So not the moment for a lesson on diversification because you can only do so much with 50 bucks. Okay, so all right, we're going to buy a stock. I affirm and applaud this decision to invest. So uh, in steering him, I kind of went the uh, Warren Buffett route. Like what do you, what do you enjoy and you, you understand well? So I don't know, Dad. I don't know really. I don't really know business. I, I like golf. I understand golf. Can I invest in golf? I said, absolutely, you can invest in golf. So we start researching uh, different golf companies. And I thought, out of curiosity, I wonder if any uh, publicly held golf company trades by the ticker golf, G-O-L-F. Um, and I looked it up. And sure enough, there is. It's a company called Akushnet. It's the parent company for Titleist Golf Balls and FootJoy Shoes and Golf Apparel. And so this is perfect. At the time, uh, golf stock was almost exactly $25 a share. He had $50 burning a hole in his pocket. And so there it is. He bought two shares of golf stock, a Kushnet, for $50. 
Now, he's left that stock alone, and fast forward uh, a few years, it's done really well. I checked it this last week, and uh, his $50 has turned into $92 over a few years. That's an 85% increase uh, in what his initial investment was. Now, the investing term for that is return on investment, or ROI. So Grady got an 85% ROI, not annual ROI, but cumulative lifetime ROI over about four years, 85% return on investment. Now, the question we need to ask, why did that valuation go up? Where did the $42 in value come from? Is it created out of thin air? Was that money printed by the government? Where did the $42 come from? Well, the way it works is the Akushnik company has been hard at work. They've taken that money from Grady and other investors, and they went to work with it. And Akushnik has worked really, really hard to increase the value of their uh, corporation. He has got to capture some of that gain. He has participated in the increased value of that organization because he is an investor. That is what's called a return on investment, ROI. Now, I share all of that not to just give an investment lesson, but because that is the very principle, the principle of investment and return on investment that Jesus uses in our parable this morning. So in today's parable, Jesus is the investor. The investment that he makes in each one of us is our very life and everything that he's given us. It all comes from him. The return on investment that he receives as an investor are the things we do in this life for the king and his kingdom. And the question that comes out of this text for you and me then is what are we doing with what we've been given? Jesus has made an investment in each one of us. We all have a life. We all have the same great commission. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all have a local church community to be on mission with. And the question is, will there be a return on Jesus's investment in us? On that last day, will we be a high ROI kingdom investment or a low ROI investment for the kingdom? And if I could just make this clarification at the outset, a text like this may feel like a burden. You need to work for the king, right? But can I point out that this passage is the exact opposite? It is not a burden to serve the king. It's a profound blessing. I think it was Mark Twain who said, the, most, the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we know the why. We live to serve the king. We don't need to flounder through life without purpose and direction like so many people around us do. We already know why we breathe there this morning. We're here to serve the king who has given us salvation. Jesus gave up his life to save us from sin and death, and he's given us heaven by grace, and now we have purpose for our days. And there is good news for you and me. We know our assignment. We know our purpose until we get to heaven. We live to serve our king. And so let's hop into our text this morning. In this parable, Jesus gives us an invitation and two warnings. And so we're going to look at them each in turn. First, the invitation, which is going to be the longer portion of the sermon because it's longer in the text, and then the two warnings uh, that he gives us uh, at the very end. So very first, uh, what's the invitation? The invitation is this. It's an invitation to invest well. Uh, we pick it up in verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately, So really quick, the they here is the crowd that's around Jesus and has been following him. Having heard these things, these things, they've just overheard his interaction with Zacchaeus uh, that Chris taught on last week in the first part of chapter 19. And as you'll recall, Zacchaeus was a man who used to use people to get money. Then he meets Jesus, is saved and changed by Jesus. Now he uses money to serve people and to serve Jesus. 
And now he's headed into Jerusalem. He's 15 miles away. And these many people assume that he's going to go to the capital city to sort of make his political move to become the earthly king of the nation of Israel and the capital city, Jerusalem, and to liberate their oppressors, the Romans. So they're anticipating an earthly kingdom that's coming immediately. But Jesus is going to correct their view of the kingdom. They're thinking here that the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's a forever kingdom. And it's not coming in its final consummate form for a long time now. And in the meantime, they've got something to do. That's the parable. They have an opportunity to invest. So we pick it up in verse 12, now knowing the context. It says, He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. So real quick, let me just uh, give you the, the, the map key of this parable. The nobleman uh, represents Jesus. He is the one who has gone off to be crowned king and will return. This represents the interim time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, when he's not physically, uh, materially on the earth with us. And this is the era that we live in. We are in between his two advents. And so this parable is very applicable to us. In this parable, there are two groups of people. There are servants and there are citizens. The servants represent Christians, those who have trusted Jesus for salvation, like Zacchaeus just has, and now who serve him as their king. Secondarily, there are citizens, and citizens represent unbelievers, those who have rejected Jesus and oppose him as king of their lives, as we just read. So there are servants and there are citizens. And so Jesus says to the servants, he gathers 10 of his servants, those are the Christians, and he gives each one of them one mina. A mina was a sum of money. It was equal to about three months' uh, wages for a laborer. So uh, to put it in, in Omaha, Nebraska dollars and just go for a simple round number, we're going to call it 10 grand. Gives each of them about 10 grand to invest. So this is not a small or insignificant amount of money. And notice that all 10 of the servants get the exact same investment. This is a little bit different than the parable of the talents. It's the more famous, the more common parable that's similar. I've heard a lot of sermons on it. I've taught a lot of sermons on it. I've never heard or taught one on the parable of the minas. What's different about the talents is each uh, servant gets a different valuation, a different amount of talents. And so the amount of, uh, so the, the parable of the talents is really a parable about our unique giftedness. The God has wired us uniquely, and we need to use our unique giftedness in proportion to what he's entrusted with us. This one's different. Everyone gets the exact same investment here, one mina per person. And so here, the emphasis, I believe, is on faithfulness. Each one gets the same mina. We all get one life. We all get the same gospel, same great commission. And what Jesus is looking for from each of us is faithfulness. He's gone away. He's coming back. He's invested a life into us. Will we be faithful until he returns? And notice that the nobleman tells the servants, quote, engage in business until I come. Engage in business. So this phrase tells us that, tells us that this, this mina is not just a parting gift. It's an investment. So Jesus has given us life and days and opportunity, and he tells us, go to work. Get to work. Get, get busy going about the king's business. So he's invested in us, and our assignment is to engage in business, to invest our lives well. We are to take everything that we have been given and invest them in the king and his kingdom. We read on in verse 15. How does it go? It says... Um, 
When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money, to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So there's the ROI, friends. What's the ROI? The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful, or, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have opportunity over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So the king comes back, and he brings his servants into the room, and he wants to know what they've done with what he's entrusted to them. And the first servant comes and says, hey, good news, I went 10x on your investment. You gave me 10 grand, it's now 100 grand. And the master says, well done, you have been faithful with a little, I will entrust you with more. Second servant comes, says, good news, we went 5x on your investment. Things have gone well. He says, well done, you will reign over five cities. And Christians, I want you to know Uh, This is a real conversation that you and I are really going to have with Jesus on a very real day in the future. Uh, This is all over scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, other places tell us that in the end, we too will give an accounting for our lives, how we invested our lives. And there will be proportionate rewards and glory based on our faithfulness in this life. So in this parable, the reward is governance over a city. So some increased ruling capacity with the king in his kingdom. Uh, What our reward will be in reality isn't very clear in Scripture. I've gotten very curious about this over the years and studied it quite a bit, and I still don't have a good answer. But what the Bible is exceedingly clear on is that our experience in heaven will not be the same for all Christians. In fact, Luke already taught this. I taught it back in chapter 12. Our rewards in heaven will be proportional to our faithfulness on earth. And so heavenly rewards are a motivation for faithful living. They're not the only motivation but they are a motivation. Certainly, we're motivated for the glory of God, for the good of other people, but we should also plan for and invest in the return that we will get on that last day. And so, Christian, I want you to imagine that day when the king comes back and you look back over at your life together. I picture sitting down saying, you know, Jesus saying, well, how did it go? What did it look like? How did you do? How did you invest your time and your energy and your money and your effort for the king? I want to ask you, what will that moment look like for you? What we should all want to hear is what the first couple servants heard. Well done. You invested well. Here's your return. If you're not sure where to start investing, I think a good place to look is to look back over your own story and ask, whose investment have you benefited from? Who are the people and the servants and the ministries and the faithful believers who have paved the way for you to meet with Jesus or for you to meet Jesus and to grow in him? As I think back over my own story... I can't help but think about the Rosencran family in Lincoln, Nebraska. I was, uh, I think, a junior in high school. I got invited to my very first ever Bible study. And I show up, it was on a Monday night, if I remember right. I show up on their house, and I remember being very insecure uh, because they told me, bring a Bible. Uh, And the only Bible that I could find was like a little kid's Bible. It was a pastel yellow color with a, uh, a pastel cover with a watercolor painting of Jesus holding a lamb with two little kids around him. I'm 16 years old at this point, right? So I walk in with the Bible kind of like this, and hey, guys, thanks for having me over. And as soon as I walked in, Judy Rosencrantz handed me this Bible. And I was so relieved because now I had the same Bible that everybody had at the Bible study, the Serendipity Student Bible. I don't know if any of you remember this. This goes clear back to like 1998, something like that. But I, I didn't pay a dime for this Bible, not a dime. She gave me this Bible. And I walked in, and they had brownies, 
I didn't bake the brownies, but I ate the brownies, okay? And they kept me coming back for a while. And I came with a lot of questions, and I asked a lot of questions. Again, my first ever Bible study, and they would have been the first to say, we do not have all the answers. We are not Bible experts. But guess what? They invested what they had, and they helped me take next steps in my understanding of the Word of God. They invested what they had. And guess what? It was studying this actual Bible as a high school junior that I got clarity around the gospel for the first time and personally trusted in Jesus and became a born-again Christian 24 years ago. I'll always be thankful for the Rosencrantz. I want to ask, who are those people for you? Who are the Christians? Who are the churches? Who are the ministries that have been that investment for you? Jesus is inviting all of us not only to benefit from the investment of others, but to invest our lives in the same way, to be the person who buys the Bible for the high school kid. To be the person to mentor a student, to pray for our missionaries, to invest our lives in the king and his kingdom so that on that day when we look back, we could say, along with the first two servants, man, Jesus, I promise I didn't bat a thousand, but I did invest. I did invest. I did go to work for the king's business, and I bought a return on your investment that you made in me. And so the first uh, thing that we see is an invitation to invest our lives. Second, Jesus gives us a warning. The warning is that we don't waste the opportunity. So Jesus highlights three of the ten servants. We've already met the first two. The third one doesn't have the same outcome and the same ending. So the first two brought a good ROI on the king's investment. Let's see how the third one and the last one in this text did in verse 20. It says, Then another, that servant, came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Okay, so this servant brings back exactly 0% ROI. No return on investment. He says, Lord, I put it in a hanky. Here it is back. I didn't lose it. Okay? And then he goes on to give an excuse for why there is no ROI. Verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Friends, we have been in Luke's gospel studying this person, Jesus, for 57 weeks. Can we not all affirm that this is the worst possible description for Jesus? Okay? It is beyond clear In Luke's gospel, Jesus is exceedingly generous. He is abundantly gracious. And so we know one of two things is happening here. One, the servant does not know his master very well. He does not know his character. Or two, he's making up an excuse for the reason why he didn't invest. And my assessment is it's probably the latter. This is a man who got busy doing 10,000 other things other than investing the mina. And on that last day, he had to come up with some reason that he did nothing with it. And so he says, oh, well, I I knew you were a pretty harsh dude, and so I just wanted to to keep it safe. Verse 22, Jesus' response. He said to him, I will condemn you, note this, with your own words, you wicked servant. So the master is being brilliant here because he's not agreeing with his assessment of his own character. Rather, he is going to trace out the false logic of this man to to trap him with his own words, to show him your excuse doesn't hold water, man, okay? It doesn't hold up. He says, and notice, I appreciate the ESV translators put a question mark after this next sentence. It helps us interpret it. It says, so you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then, premise conclusion, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So Jesus is saying that at least, if that's true of me, the least thing you could have done, financially speaking, is at least put the money in the bank and get a little interest, okay, if that was your concern. It may not be much, but something is always better than nothing. 
A little bit is a little bit better than nothing. And so the idea that Jesus is saying here is that even if we're not swinging for the fence for the kingdom of God to make our lives count, we can at least start small. Something is always better than nothing. Even if it's unimpressive, at least it's something. And so I would encourage some of you to just start investing your life somewhere. You don't need to sell all your possessions and move around the world to start serving the king. You just start somewhere. Like interest in a bank, it can be low risk and uh, little work, but start somewhere. You might say, well, I've never served anywhere. Well, then start somewhere. You say, well, I've never even been to church two weeks in a row. Well, you're halfway there. We'll see you next week, okay? (laughs) Progress, you know? It's just start. Well, I've never given a dime. Well, literally give a dime to the kingdom of God and his gospel work. Well, I've never read the Bible faithfully. Read it once this week. You just start somewhere because Jesus says, if we're faithful with what? A little that will be uh, rewarded with much, will be entrusted much. So Jesus, his heart here, he's, he's eager to celebrate our progress and faithfulness even in little steps. He's like the proud parent celebrating the little baby step milestones of his children. He wants to see you take next steps, even small steps. But his warning here is just don't do nothing. He summarizes all this in verse 24 where he says, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. How many of you, if you had saved up a good sum of money and invested it in two financial advisors, one gets you a 15% return every year, year over year, one gets you zero, would not take all the funds from this investor and put it in with this one? This is just common sense. This is what Jesus is saying here. Now, what this passage is not implying is that the unwise investor loses his salvation. Notice that the parable he's still referred to as a servant So he still belongs with the king. He's in the king's company. But his reward at the king's return is nowhere near what it would have been. He has wasted his opportunity. And so the warning for us is this. It's so easy to miss the purpose of our lives. It's so easy to tuck away our mina in a handkerchief and just wait for Jesus to come back. It's so easy just to say a prayer, to receive Jesus into our heart, and to attend church on occasion, maybe bring our kids so they get some positive influence, but then never really take a risk for the kingdom. Never invest our lives in anything eternally oriented. And what we don't want to do is give an account for our lives someday and tell Jesus, well, uh, you know, I, I played a safe. I didn't do much wrong. I, I mean, I, I stayed married. I never cheated. And I uh, went, went to church a little bit and then mostly just watch Netflix and cable news. And next thing I know, we're having this conversation. Was that not what the purpose of my life? Was that not the goal? This is going to be an uncomfortable conversation. Imagine Jesus saying, well, did you make one disciple? I give you X number of years. Did you make one disciple? You say, oh, oh, you, you want, you actually meant that. Yes, I actually meant that. Well, oh, I didn't, but I did watch every episode of Ted Lasso three times. Okay. Well, that's okay. Well, did you serve my church? Hmm. No, but if you want to know all about the Husker recruits, man, I'm your guy. I know everything that's going on. Okay, well, did you share your faith with anyone? Uh, I voted the right way. Okay, oh, 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 okay, did you mentor someone and help someone along that was a little bit behind you? I coached T-ball 35 years ago. You know, I, none of us wants to have that conversation with Jesus. Now, if that's where you're at, uh, can I just remind you the good news is that it's not too late to get started. I think that's the point of the second one. He's like, just put it at least in the bank. Even if you're faithful with a little bit, Jesus is eager to reward that. So the good news for all of us in this room, 
um, is that this day of accounting of our lives is still in the future. Whether God has 50 years left for us or five days left for us, there is still an opportunity to invest, to use what we've been given for the king and his kingdom. So I would ask you, it's a very practical sermon, what is one step that you can take this week? What is one person that you can move toward? What is one person that you can bless and help along? What is one dollar amount that you can give? What is one ministry that you can serve? What is one study that you can start? Now, to be clear, let me just say this emphatically. We do not work for our salvation. Jesus squared all of that up at the cross. We receive salvation 100% by grace, but we do work from our salvation for the king and his kingdom, for his glory and his kingdom in the world. So Jesus warns us, don't waste the opportunity. Lastly, this parable ends on a pretty grim caution. That's where I got the good luck heckling behind me, uh, which is our final point, and that's this. Caution, the consequences of rejecting the king. So notice the audience shift as Jesus teaches here. He is no longer talking about his servants. He uh, turns his attention back to the citizens, those who said, we do not want this guy to reign over us, those who have rejected him outright. In our last verses, verse 27, it says, but as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, my guess is this is probably not the life verse for very many of you. I don't know. Does anyone get this tattooed in Greek on your forearm? It'd be a cute tattoo. Oh, is that a Bible verse? What is it? Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Whoa, okay. Uh, Let me give a a couple notes on this uncomfortable uh, verse that our passage ends on. Uh, Number one, in ancient kingdoms, this is literally what happens. So anytime a new king was inaugurated, he gets onto the throne, first order of business, you bring all the haters, all the enemies, all the naysayers, all those who oppose, you kill all of them. That is how a new kingdom was ushered in. So some commentators, and I will disagree, say this is simply imagery for saying when he comes in his kingdom in fullness, when there are no more enemies. But I think there's more here. I think we're supposed to feel the ooh to it. I think Jesus is actually warning us about the coming judgment and and hell for anyone who rejects him until the end. After all, did you know that Jesus talks more about hell than anyone else in the Bible? Some people wrongly think like, you know, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are so different. In the Old Testament, he was just like fire and brimstone. It was all judgment. Then you get to the New Testament, it's like God had a kid and he softened up. You know, now he's like happy grandpa God. And uh, that's literally not the case. Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he talks about it with often grim, uncomfortable imagery, weeping and gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire. Here it's slaughter. Why is that? Well, I would propose, couldn't it be, at least in part, to wake people up? How do you shock someone out of indifference? How do you shock someone out of callousness of heart, out of apathy? And so Jesus warns us to wake us up. He warns us because he loves us. He warns us because he he wants us to know the outcome of those who reject him until the end. He warns us because he wants us to know why he's invited us to invest our lives. Because there is a real judgment coming and eternity is at stake for those around us. So the reason he doesn't just want us watching Netflix and cable news is till he comes back because eternity is on the line for people. He's given us a mission and we can engage in this mission. Additionally, where this may sound harsh, a verse like this. We should be quick to read it in view of Jesus' cross. The one who speaks these words, friends, is about to be slaughtered himself. The lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Again, Jesus is now about 15 miles out from Jerusalem. He's one week out from his death, and he knows what's before him. And he came to take the slaughter so that we don't have to. 
Friends, on that cross, he didn't just endure the pain of the Roman execution. He endured the full wrath of God toward the sin of those who would come and trust in him. Our payment that we owed the Father in judgment. And he was slaughtered so that we don't have to be. And so the good news, again, for all of us in this room, if you don't know Jesus, it's not too late. Jesus has not come back yet. He has not called you to the other side. You're still on this side of the opportunity. And guess what? Jesus is still inviting his enemies to become his friends. He's inviting citizens to become servants. He is still welcoming those who have opposed him to receive his love and to come under his care. And so if you have not yet, would you invite him into your life this morning? And Christians in the room, can I just remind us that because of this gospel, because Jesus took the slaughter on our behalf, we don't need to fear death. Breathe in, breathe out. A thousand years from now, everything's going to be okay. Because Jesus took the wrath for our sins in our place. We don't fear death. We don't fear judgment. Instead, here's what we have between now and glory, friends. We have an opportunity to invest. The things that we've been given, the life that we have, what's been given to us, we can invest in eternity. That on that last day, we might hear along with servant one and two, well done, you have been faithful with what I've entrusted you. Enter into your rest and receive your reward. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Gavin Johnson of City Light Omaha. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.